This episode is sponsored in part by Maui Nui Venison. Maui Nui Venison is a mission-based food company bringing the healthiest red meat on the planet directly to your door. I love, well, this meat uh, and the mission. First off, it's seriously delicious. It's not gamey at all. I thought it would be kind of gamey. I've had venison before. It's easy to cook. The whole family enjoys it. I feel good about Maui Nui Venison from an ethical standpoint because not only does this company provide the most nutrient-dense and protein-dense red meat available, this is the only stress-free, 100% wild-harvested red meat on the market, an operation that is the only one of its kind in the world, as far as I know, actively managing Maui's invasive Axis deer populations. You don't think of deer as a pest, but they literally are helping to restore balance to vulnerable ecosystems and communities in Hawaii. I highly recommend trying their all-natural venison jerky sticks. If you're a jerk like me, for an optimal protein snack, as well as a wide variety of fresh cuts, all available in their online butcher shop. Get 20% off your first order at MauiNuiVenison.com slash Jordan. That's MauiNuiVenison.com slash Jordan. I know you can't spell that. It'll be linked in the show notes. Coming up next on The Jordan Harbinger Show. You don't go into it knowing it's two years. It could be two minutes. You know, I listen, I didn't sign up for a two-year undercover deal. That's just what it turned into. And most of the, or a lot of these, as they're progressing along, get stopped for different reasons. One, something's going to happen where you have to come out of roll and stop it. Number two, your cover does get blown. It happens regularly. Like, there's so many things that can happen that would stop it. The fact that very few of these run for two years. You're always kind of just seeing how it's going to play out. And that's where, you know, some of this dumb luck comes into it. And people always think I'm making light of it, but it is a fact. Welcome to the show. I'm Jordan Harbinger. On the Jordan Harbinger Show, we decode the stories, secrets, and skills of the world's most fascinating people. We have in-depth conversations with scientists, entrepreneurs, spies, psychologists, even the occasional drug trafficker, money laundering expert, or astronaut. Each episode turns our guests' wisdom into practical advice that you can use to build a deeper understanding of how the world works and become a better thinker. If you're new to the show or you want to tell your friends about the show, and I always appreciate it when you do, our starter packs are the best place to get uh, started with that. These are collections of our favorite episodes organized by topic that'll help new listeners get a taste of everything that we do here on the show. Topics like negotiation and communication, influence, activism, resistance, failure and resilience, investing in financial crimes, and more. Just visit jordanharbinger.com slash start or search for us in your Spotify app to get started. A special announcement, by the way, I'm going to be doing a live show, like live, in person, in real life. I'm going to be interviewing Ryan Holiday, author Ryan Holiday. That's going to be in Los Angeles at the Venice West on June 13th. So tickets are available. I'd love to meet you in person. Tickets are available at jordanharbinger.com slash tickets. Again, jordanharbinger.com slash tickets. June 13th at the Venice West in Los Angeles. I'll be interviewing Ryan Holiday, and I hope to see you there. Today, part two with Ken Croak, who went undercover in the Pagans Motorcycle Club. Crazy episode. If you haven't heard part one, stop this one right now. Go get part one. You gotta start from the beginning. Stories are absolutely bonkers. Here we go. Here's part two with Ken Croak. Did she work on that case where... It turned out to be a firefighter the whole time, burning buildings down for like 20 years? Actually, that was me. That was you. Oh, okay. Yeah. Oh, my degree is in accounting. So when I first started on the job, they put me in an arson group because a lot of arson work is based on money. Insurance fraud, right? Yeah. So I, I was a brand new agent and kind of myself and Glenn Lucera, LA Fire Department arson investigator, started that case. And we initiated that case and, and worked it through. I was going back and forth to the academy, so others were involved as well. But yeah, that guy was one sick individual. You think of arsonists as weird solo crazies because 
you gotta love burning something down that might hurt a lot of people, does damage to people's stuff, ruins people's lives. There's almost no kind of real obvious upside for it. If you own the building, man, yeah, you do some insurance fraud, you get it. But if you're just burning down someone else's building, it's just pure crazy. For most of them, it ties back to like a sexual deal. It's, it, yeah. No, it's even more weird. Yeah, there's a lot of studies to it. But this particular individual, he was probably the most prominent in California arson investigators. And because he wasn't just a firefighter, he was an arson investigator. And I'd worked scenes with him. Oh, wow. And he's probably one of the top five in the country. And he was starting these fires. And of course, we'd go out and work scenes and work grids to look for devices. And he was always the guy who found it. So in retrospect, you're like, oh, I wonder why. Now I know. <laughs> yeah. Look, it was under this chair the whole time. How did you find that? Well, definitely, yeah, if you put it there. Right. But I mean, he was responsible for the deaths of more than one individual you know, through these fires and some you know, horrible, yeah, grandmother and her granddaughter both were killed. So Ugh. yeah, he's, he's right where he needs to be. Yeah, it's horrible. How do you manage the undercover work you were doing with kids? Because on the one hand, you almost get blown up with a huge explosion when this bomb maker in the book, right? But how do you tell your kids, hey, I'm not going to be around for a while, but also I can't tell you what I'm doing, especially when they're teenagers, like they kind of know, but then you got to have rules, right, for explaining this sort of thing. You can't be kind of hot and cold with it or it won't work. We always tried our best to keep a low profile with our neighbors about what we did. Not to say that some didn't know. I mean, you, you're walking out of your house at four o'clock in the morning because you go to do warrants. People are going to figure things out. Yeah. But we kept a very low profile when it came to that. And we also had raised our kids like, don't talk about what mom and dad do. And if any conversations you hear, you know, keep it here because they're sensitive. And, and they were pretty good about it. But this was a little bit different. This was like, hey, dad's gone. When he comes home, you know, like my wife would be the first one to tell you, when you came home, you weren't really home. In retrospect, thinking back, how could I possibly have been home? Because sometimes it was more stressful being away from the gang because you didn't know what was happening and then you had to re-engage with them, mm -hmm. where it was easier when you were just with them day in and day out and you could see how things would develop. And then they would hear, unbeknownst to my wife and I, they would hear conversations that we would have, as kids do. You know, you think they're asleep or they're... And that came out when I, I was able to get home and I went to one of my daughters, my youngest daughter's hockey games. And I saw, and I was supposed to be the head coach of the team, but you know, that was before I had agreed to do this case. And so I was over by the bench and one of the girls had said, Hey, you know, coach Ken, we, ha we haven't seen you in a while. I'm like, yeah, I'm sorry. I've been working. And she's like, Oh yeah, we, we heard you were at a party with Roblox. Oh God. And I was like, holy shit. This is a big deal. Like if that name gets out and gets, you know, somebody posts something or whatever it is, your whole identity is gone. Mm -hmm. And so like simple things like that. And so, you know, we talked to the kids and my wife and I were also like, hey, we got we to gotta go to the garage when we talk. We just cannot talk about this in here because they're hearing us. Dang. So you must have had to have a, like a baseball or whatever soccer meeting like, hey, you can't tell your kids about this. I know you know some stuff and you hear some stuff. Like this will get me killed or worse. Did you have to manage that somehow? The folks that I'm sure they speculated, the parents of players or whatever, but I never told them anything. Now they could see I look like a shitbag. And when I was at games, you could see parents from like the other team looking at like, who's the shitbag, you know, over there watching the game. <laughs> and it used to infuriate my wife because my wife would be like, I just want to scream out he's a federal agent because- And he's keeping you safe. And she's like, we go in the supermarket and people look at you like you're a dirtbag. And at one point I was in a bank. I was in the bank and came out and I took a phone call standing out front. I got jacked up and thrown in the back of a cruiser just because I later learned- there was a guy who did an armed robbery and he was like five foot one. I'm like six, three, like he didn't look anything <laughs> like me, but I still ended up getting jacked up and thrown in the, in the cruiser. Yeah. So, you know, stuff happens and <laughs> you know, you, you just kind of reflect back. You're like, why am I doing this again?
Yeah, you would second guess it. I mean, the undercover life has to spill into your home life a little bit, even in addition to that. Like, I would imagine you can't be with a bunch of guys talking about violence, drugs, misogynist stuff, and disgusting activity, and then come home and be a model citizen at home. I, I assume the language, at least, the foul language is at the least of that has to spill over into your home life. And then you're just like, wait a minute, wait a minute. I can't do that in front of my kids. No, my wife would say to me, she's like, hey, we can't lose you to the dark side. Like, So we were talking one night and I was describing somebody. And so I'm like, you know, the dude who puts peanut butter on his balls and his dog licks him off. And <laughs> she's like, do you realize what you just said? She goes, you say that like you're describing someone with blonde hair. That was your description. You didn't even bat an eye. Like, you didn't even think that was weird. She's like, you cannot turn into one of them. And I'm like, I'm not. She said, that's the thing that pops in my head when I think of this idiot. Yeah. That concerned her. And she always like was there to try to level set and be like, hey, remember, keep a foot in reality. Right. Obviously, I did and, and it all worked out. But to your point, it does, it does give you a different view for sure. When you say get lost to the dark side, does that just mean it degrades the way you talk and act as a person? Or are there agents that are like, you know what, this criminal life, I'm making a lot of money, screw this police thing, this is great. I mean, does that ever happen? I don't ever think it's for the money. I think maybe the lifestyle. So hmm. we've lost people to the dark side. Like they quit law enforcement? Is that what that means? Not so much. No, but they, they change and their personality changes. Ultimately, they're not able to survive on the job anymore because of choices that they make afterwards. And so ATF made a real concerted effort to really monitor that. So like when I was in, I had to every six months go see a shrink. So they level set before you go in and then every six months you get evaluated. Now it's problematic because you got to come up with an excuse to disappear, but you go and they would evaluate you. And you know, I assume if they saw something wrong, they'd be like, hey, you got to pull them out. I always joked. I'm like, okay, if I can fool 2000 pagans, I'm pretty sure I can fool one shrink. Mm. But my shrink friends say, no, they're smarter than that and they'd be able to detect it. So I, I don't know the real truth. I didn't go to the dark side, so I don't, I don't know. But they do put a lot of effort into making sure that those who are doing this stay healthy and stay entrenched in where they're at. And you know, when they come back out, they give you a transition period to get back you know, into a normal life again. I know you said that there's cover teams nearby where possible. Obviously, not when you're in the top of a 40-story building in the projects or whatever, if you can't do that. But a lot of this biker stuff, man, you're out in the middle of what sounds like just like a in the middle of the desert in a campground at best or in the woods somewhere. I mean, you can't just have a, a police van with tinted windows parked on the side of the road anywhere near this thing, right? No, no, you can't. And so other than one exception the entire two years, I never wore a wire because there were times the churches where they do all their secretive meetings and where they do their criminal planning and, and things like that. So they refer to it as church. When you go to church, and this is because they learned over the years on criminal prosecutions that there's ways through cell phones that you can monitor cell phone batteries, blah, blah, blah. So there were no electronics allowed in church at all. In most cases, they had RF detectors. So RF picking up a frequency of a transmitter. They would wand you to make sure that you didn't have any transmitters on. And there were times where we had to strip naked and we'd be sitting, these are some ugly people, man. And I'm just sitting in you know church naked, you know, having our meetings so that they knew nobody could have had a wire on. Wow. And so even if a cover team was around the corner, they're not going to know anything happens until way in. Maybe they see your body getting dragged out. I don't know. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> but in most cases, they were way too far away anyways. I mean, there's times miles, miles away. So they always joked it was the body recovery team, not really a, yeah. a cover team. But these cover teams, 
if they get too aggressive and they're too close, they can actually burn you much more than you can burn yourself. So you have to have trust in those folks that are out there and they know. And I'd much rather, I'd rather work my way out of something than have somebody come gang busting through thinking they're helping me when they're not. Did your cover team ever get you in trouble or come close to it? There was only, it's pretty amazing for a two-year investigation. And I will caveat this. So when you were at certain events, like if I went to a mandatory, which the mandatory is a prospect, worst experience, and we could talk about that, but there was a law enforcement there. All Everyone was there and they knew law enforcement was there. And so they'd be flipping them off, posing for photographs because they knew the cops were all watching it because it was known that these events were happening. So like anybody could be there. There's no problem. But there was a night when I was buying a couple ounces of crack cocaine off a hogman and his- As one does. Yeah. You know, just a regular Friday night. And his source came and delivered the crack cocaine. And so paid him, did, you know, our thing, we were done. And a, a not so bright supervisor was in a crown vic and got way too close. The classic police card that every kid yeah. recognizes from age 15 through the rest of your life. Yeah. Exactly. Like if you're in that, just go to like the local coffee shop and have a coffee because you're not going to help anyways. But anyways, this clown got way too close. And this guy calls back to Inwis Hogman, who I was buying the crack from. He calls back and he goes, hey, cops are all over me. Something's up. Your place heated this up. You know, what's going on over there? Blah, blah, blah. And so Hogman's saying this to me. And I'm like, hey, fuck this guy. He's clearly got the cops on him. He brought him to him. Tell him he better not bring his ass back anywhere near here. Just tell him to keep freaking driving. They jack him up. Better keep his mouth shut. And so just put it back on him. And we had several transactions where we didn't need to deal with him again. But when I met the cover team, yeah, I met him at like three in the morning to give him the crack cocaine. I let in, hey, who was that? Who was in that car? They should never be out here again. And unfortunately, it was the supervisor. So they kind of <laughs> had to be out there. So Yeah, that's, oh man, it sucks because it's the classic boss maybe doesn't really know what the guy on the ground is dealing with, except for in, instead of like, oh, you messed up a week of work. It's like, oh, you got three people killed or you got me murdered in front of my colleagues and ruined, or just ruined the whole case where I was undercover for years with these guys. Right. Yeah. No, that's exactly it. The amount of time, blood, sweat, and tears that go into this. And listen, there's things that happen over the That's why people are always like, oh, whatever made you decide to do a two-year undercover? Mm-hmm. You don't go into it knowing it's two years. It could be two minutes. You know, I listen, I didn't sign up for a two-year undercover deal. That's just what it turned into. And most of the, or a lot of these, as they're progressing along, get stopped for different reasons. One, something's going to happen where you have to come out of roll and stop it. Number two, your cover does get blown. It happens regularly. Like there's so many things that can happen that would stop it. The fact that very few of these run for two years, you're always kind of just seeing how it's going to play out. And that's where, you know, some of this dumb luck comes into it. And people always think I'm making light of it, but it is a fact. Yeah, I've heard, I've had other undercovers on before. Jack Garcia, who infiltrated the mob, he was with the FBI. And he basically just abruptly had to stop because one of the guys he was with saw somebody he hated at the mall and picked up like a glass centerpiece and hit him in the head with it. And he's like, well, if he hits him again, that guy's going to die. And I'm standing right here and we're at a shopping mall. And so he was like, what are you doing? And he like, basically, I think I can't remember the exact details, but I want to say he stopped the guy or he arrested the guy right there and was like, got to pull the ripcord because this idiot is an impulsive dumbass and i can't let this guy get beat to death another criminal actually and you know it's unfortunate like you can't let this guy get beat to death in front of me because laws yeah and there was a couple times there was one night that i was a sergeant arms and i it was another sergeant arms and two presidents and we were heading over to see a president of a support club it got heated we were going back and 
the two presidents were like, we're going to kill him. We're going to stab him. And we were up on the rooftop of a motel. And they wanted to toss him between these two buildings. It was like a three-foot gap. And they're like, we're going to stab him throw him between these two buildings. And so it's like 700 of their gang members in this hotel. And I'm like, there's no way that I can let this happen for sure. And I've got a gun with six rounds in it. So that's not you know going to do me a whole lot of good. <laughs> right. And so I'm looking around and on the rooftop and I see some blue flashing lights way off in the distance. And I'm like, how do I get their attention? Anyways, long story short was... I was able to use their own rules back on them, you know, to kill a president of another club. You've got to have mother club to bless off on that. And I'm like, hey, we got to go back and get mother club. We were at a mandatory. So I was like, we got to go back and get mother club to bless off on this. One of the presidents was like, fuck that. We're doing it anyways. The other president was like, yeah, he's right. Let's go. We'll go. And by the time we went, got there, everyone kind of cooled off, talking mother club. And they're like, no, there's other ways we could handle it. So bottom line is we were able to avoid it. But like at that point, I, there was no choice. I was going to have to come out of roll. Oh, man. Good thing you are such a good student and you memorized all these little bylaws that they have, right? You had to pull, you, you could have been a lawyer. Yeah. <laughs> uh, sorry, subsection four says we have to get sign off on this. Ah, you're right. He's right. Yeah. Yeah, man. Use their own stuff back against them. I know eventually they put a female agent in as your girlfriend, which seems like a good idea because then at least you're not alone, right? So maybe if they got a female agent coming in as your girlfriend, She's just like another set of eyes. What other benefit is there aside from that? You know, in a lot of these cases, they would do that. Where you cycle somebody in and out as a girlfriend. In this particular case, there was a couple of things. One is you've got a lot of these women who like, not the undercover, but a lot of other women involved in the case, old ladies or hangarounds or what have you, and they're going to be hitting on you all the time. And so like at some point, you know, if you don't have a girlfriend or a wife or something out there. You're only going to be able to say no so many times before it's going to start looking weird. It kind of goes back to like the, here's the new guy in. Oh, he's not interested in women. He's not doing drugs. He's not doing, you know, alcohol and all sudden, So it just doesn't look right. And so when you could have a female as part of that, that would take that burden away. The problem is on a female, and I talk about it in the book, is you could go alone. You can go and have a female who's, you know, there, but they can't be there for a lot of the stuff, but especially when you're prospecting, they don't want girlfriends, wives or anything around. Yeah. And even when you're a member, certain events they can't go to. So that limits their involvement, but they are less scrutinized. Nobody's searching them. Nobody's really paying attention to what they're doing. There's also like an underground chatter between old ladies mm-hmm. and you may get some intel because even though you're not supposed to talk to your old ladies about anything, these guys do. So you can get some intel. The other option is to take another male you know, agent in, and that's happened many times where you've had two, three, four people in a chapter. Certainly, and some buddies of mine have done it that way, and they're like, hey, the upside is you at least have a normal person to talk to yeah. when you're in there. But the other side of it is like, there's so many ways your story can get crossed up when you bring other people in because they start asking questions like, yeah. what did Ken think about this? Or what, what did Ken do last? And they start checking up on your story. It's the quickest and easiest way for them to, to get you crossed up. So for me, it was always like, hey, I'd rather just do this on my own. And if I screw up, I screw up. It's on me. And it's not going to affect nobody but me. You're listening to The Jordan Harbinger Show with our guest, Ken Croak. We'll be right back. This episode is sponsored in part by Fidelity. I love what I do. I also love the idea of not doing it one day, but it's getting harder to know the best way to move into the future towards retirement. Don't worry, I've got like a decade and change left unless people stop listening to podcasts. We hear about inflation, rate hikes, the changing markets. 
got to get the kids through college, build an emergency fund, and then there's retirement. And here's where Fidelity comes in. Fidelity can help you find clarity in saving for the future, even as your path and priorities evolve. How? Well, they'll help you create a free personalized plan that adapts as your priorities change. They'll also show you what's called timely insights, small tips on ways to save and invest and help meet your goals. And you can monitor your plan so you stay on target. The future's coming, and so is retirement. Fidelity can help you take it on your way. Learn more at fidelity.com future. Expenses charged by your investments and other costs and fees associated with trading or transacting in your account apply. Fidelity Brokerage Services, member NYSE SIPC. Shall I take your order, or do you need a minute? Yes, I'll be ready. Just buying a car on Carvana. What? It's super convenient. I already got pre-qualified in two minutes. All I had to do was answer a few questions. What? That's handy. Yeah, now I'm customizing my down and monthly payments. What? That's an exquisite deal. And just like that, Carvana's delivering my car in a couple days. What? Oh, yeah. Uh, sorry, I'll have the burrito. Visit Carvana.com to finance your next car. Financing subject to credit approval. Delivery fees may apply. Hey, folks, a lot of you have asked me about networking and how I build my network and find the guests for the show. I'm teaching you how to build your network for free over at jordanharbinger.com slash course. That course is about improving your networking connection skills, sure, but also inspiring other people to develop a professional relationship with you, a personal relationship with you. This course will make you a better networker, of course, and a better connector, but most importantly, it'll make you a better thinker. It's free, and it's at jordanharbinger.com slash course. By the way, the guests you hear on the show subscribe and contribute to that same course. Come join us. You'll be in smart company where you belong. Now, back to Ken Croak. Man, the guys are so violent. Many of them are rapists and murderers. Like, you could have, I don't know, I guess old ladies are probably off limits, but maybe they don't care. Or maybe they're too high on methamphetamine, and they just go after her, and you're like, great, now she's with the guy who eats dead things with the blood fetish alone in a room somewhere and she doesn't have a phone or they take it out on her if they don't like you. I don't know. Does that happen? Well, that absolutely could happen. But when you're a full patch, they also give you a property patch. And so if you're a member, you have a property patch, so we say property of slam, and that would go to my girlfriend, wife, or whatever it is. They're protected, if you will. Now, it's not, I wouldn't take it to the bank, but it's better off than not. But the bulk, you know, a good part of this investigation, you're not a patch member. So there is no property patch. There is no protection. Mm-hmm. And there's one meeting where some old ladies have been doing some stuff and one of the mother club members is getting really pissed. And they're like, hey, I'm sick and tired of these old ladies and their friends causing all these problems. Remember this, rape them, beat them, kill them. We don't care, but they are not going to be taught. So they're like laying this out. And so it puts you at risk. And in the book, I talk about one, something that happened that was, and it was 100% my fault, where I had my undercover girlfriend there. And I was not a patch. I had been kicked out of the club and I got kicked out for nothing that I did. The national vice president who vouched for me had tried a coup and tried to become the national president the night before, or actually, no, this goes back about a month or two before. And he gets beaten out of the club severely. And then everybody who had, that he had sponsored got kicked out of the club as well. So I was out, nothing to do with me. And quite honestly, I was done. I, I just wanted to go home and go back to my normal life. But some folks convinced me to just kind of hang around and see what would happen. Mm-hmm. Anyways, long story short, I ended up down at this mandatory as a civilian, not anything with the club. We weren't allowed to go in the compound of where all the pagans were because I wasn't a pagan, but some of the presidents had a motel nearby. And so we were over there and people were hanging out. I had left her there with some old ladies in, in the room. I was up front and Peter had walked up to me and with his sergeant arms, he's like, hey, I want to talk to you. He's like, let's take a walk, which wasn't abnormal. And so we start walking and 
before long, I realized like, where are we going? And like, you know, I felt like, hey, these guys are leading me away. So I got this pit in my stomach and I'm like, oh shit. And we've walked like a fair distance. So I was like, hey, I just got me a quick call. And so I called the female undercover and she didn't answer her phone. And as it turns oh, out, man. she had the phone on vibrate, which is normal. That's what we always did. But it was sitting on a bed. So it, she, you know, right. she didn't hear it. So I'm sitting there, I call multiple times and, and I'm like, I cannot believe I let these guys lure me away. So I very awkwardly was like, hey, I got to go back. I got to take care of something. And they're like, wait, wait, we're not done. Hold on. And I'm like, no, I got to go. And there was no stopping me. I was going because it, again, this is one of those things. You, if you have to, you come out and roll. Like, I didn't know what the hell was happening to her back there. So I'm trying not to run, but I'm walking as fast as I can and it get back in the doors. It was open when I left and it was not all the way closed. It was a jar, but not by much. And so I went and pushed the door open, expecting to see the worst. And it was nothing. It was a bunch of you know old ladies hanging in there and talking. And she was one of them. You know, it's like you lose your kid in the mall and then you find yeah. them. And, and like the first thing you do is yell at them. Mostly because you're just scared and you're just happy that they're there, but it's not how it comes across. Right. And so I did. I'm like, what the hell are you answering your phone? You know, blah, blah. And it was totally on me. I never should have walked out of that room. I never should have left that area. But just kind of, you know, a mistake that I made. And luckily, you know, nobody, you know, got hurt because of it. Although it's in character for you to be kind of an asshole to your girlfriend as a outlaw biker guy, right? Totally. And yell at her in front of her friends. Totally. And it was totally not even acting. But again, it was mostly, I was yelling at myself yeah. because I never, you know, I knew better. I should have never let it happen. How do you weigh keeping your cover versus someone else's well-being, right? The grossest guy in the book later on, or one of the, it's hard to even keep him straight. They're all disgusting, right? But he tells you, oh, there's this girl hanging out at the tattoo shop who's like a young student, right? And it's a biker-owned tattoo shop. And he's like, I'm going to brutally rape and murder this woman because I want to. And you're like, that could have torn you out of the, your role, right? Because you have to make sure that this innocent girl doesn't have this yeah. happen to her. A hundred percent. And it would have, you know, again, it comes back to you just kind of thinking real quickly, like, okay, what can I do? And this one was kind of slow developing over a period of probably, I don't know, a couple of weeks. Because it started with a very attractive art major comes by the chapter president's tattoo shop. She really gifted artists, but she didn't know how to tattoo. And there's a big difference between drawing it and then actually sure. putting it on somebody's skin. So she was there kind of as an apprentice. So he he worked with it legitimately. But there was a couple of pagans who were there and they're like trying to flirt with it. And it was comical for me at the beginning because I'm sitting back and there was like a big sofa in the tattoo shop. And I'm looking and I'm like, you idiots, like go look in a mirror and then go look at this girl. <laughs> like you really think you have a snowball's chance in hell of getting with her. But then it went from being funny to like, oh, wait a minute, because Hogman started talking and he you know, started getting more aggressive in what he was saying, not towards her, but the way he was looking at her, I'm like, man, this dude's like, he's heading down a path. And then eventually he was like, hey, I'm going to rape this girl. And I'm going to, you know, he was talking about what he was going to do to her. And so I was like, all right, well, obviously I'm not going to, like some people may talk to that stuff, you know, but like with this guy, I would never put it past him. And mm -hmm. so I wasn't going to wait around to find out. And so- I had approached her. There's one of a couple of things I could do is come out of roll and take the whole thing down, or I could try to get her to go away. So I approached her and I basically said, Hey, listen, I could get myself in a world of trouble by even telling you this. I said, But you need to leave. You're not safe here. Hogman's very focused on you, and this is not going to end well for you. You need to leave. And I didn't mean need to leave like in the next three minutes, but like when you leave tonight, don't come back because mm -hmm. it was easy enough to just to be around her and make sure nothing was going to happen. And to her credit, she did leave. Never saw her again. Smart. She was gone. I'm sure she went to another tattoo parlor and got her training. These guys are obvious creeps, right? It's not like this guy was undercover chewing on blood clots and all the stuff that he was doing. 
So she probably already had a bad vibe from him. And then you coming in and being like, yeah, this guy isn't just a gross guy that we can sort of like wave off. Right. And she's like, yeah, I was already on the fence. See you never. And you can see how people are looking at you, you know, yeah. there's like looking at you like hopeful and there's looking at you like you're a piece of meat. And that's mm-hmm. what it turned into for him. There's a war between the pagans and the hell's angels among other gangs, right? And they're dealing guns, these illegal guns as felons. The whole time you're making a huge list of crimes, right? What's the most intense or severe felony you had a front row seat for? Was it some of these bomb threats and things like that? The murder conspiracy was probably the biggest where they were talking about how they were going to kill certain people in a large part of them with Hell's Angels. And they had very specific ways they were going about it. And there's some recordings that really laid out their intent and how they were going to do it. And some of it was with bombs. They had the bombs. We ultimately ended up getting some of them. You know, before the case was over. Mm-hmm. But there was gun trafficking, drug trafficking, Vicar, you know, beatings. Like there's a whole string of events. That, you know, eventually it became a RICO case and prosecuted such as it's like organized crime case. Yeah. Right. Exactly. And so, you know, to your point, like there'd be some days that not a lot was going on. Other days it'd be like five different things going on. And as you get later in the case, it's like, okay, you have to sure up these charges by getting this conversation. So like if you had a bodyguard statute where Somebody who's carrying a gun in defense of a felon who can't carry a gun. That's a, a federal offense. But you have to show that they knew that person was a felon. So then you basically have to have a conversation with them, somehow getting them to say or acknowledge that they knew this person was a felon. So like some of those things to kind of tie up the loose ends of the case, the closer you get to the end. And then you have to freshen up the PC for the warrants. PC probable cause, right? Right, right. I appreciate you translating for me. No problem, man. Somebody's got to do it. <laughs> <laughs> but you would be... You know, like I'd be in Trucker's house, who's one of, you know, the brothers, Roblox, Hogman, and Trucker. And I saw our gun there, but, you know, I'd seen it months before. So now I got to figure out a way to go back to Trucker's house to see if that gun's still in Trucker's house, you know, as the case is getting closer to coming down. And so, like, a lot of that kind of activity as you're moving along and kind of putting those, because that's the whole reason you're there, to build the case. And listen, there was plenty of people, actually, there were some who could have been charged, who weren't charged. But there's some there that didn't do anything illegal. So it's like, okay, that's fine too. You're not going in with, a, oh, I'm going to get these 20 guys in this chapter. Mm-hmm. No, I'm going to go in and get whoever's doing what they're doing and document and make sure I put together a solid case. So for people who are maybe not American or their law background is not, not up to snuff, probable cause is what police have when they say, hey, I, I see something illegal or smell something illegal in your car. Now I'm going to search your car. You need that to get a warrant. So what you're talking about is if you saw a gun in someone's house eight months ago, and it's illegal, and maybe he had a bunch of drugs in his safe and some cash, you can't say, hey, eight months ago, this guy had something in there. You have to find a reason to go back in the house, look in there again when he's not looking, make sure that stuff is still in there. Then you can go back to the prosecutor, the judge, whatever, and say, that stuff's still in there. I just saw it a couple days ago. The warrant, if we go and we search it, you're probably going to find it. And then that makes the warrant hold up in court when they're prosecuting. Because otherwise, you could have this old thing. You could even find it. And then they say, well, this probable cause is kind of nonsense. You saw something almost a year ago on that. You got a warrant. You went in there. Yeah, you found it. But that's called fruit of the poison tree. And it's so that police don't uh, overstep their bounds. And it can really screw up a case, as I'm sure you've uh, seen and probably had happen before. Sure. Yeah. And that's really what... So not a single one of these individuals went to trial. The evidence was overwhelming. But the majority of them filed motions, mm-hmm. much to like what you were just describing in hopes of being able to suppress some of the evidence. Yeah. In the end, you know, they weren't successful and they all played guilty. You know, I was amazed at how cheap it is to have some of these crimes done. It really is dirty deeds done dirt cheap for some of these guys. There was one example in the book where I think you said you wanted to blow up someone's boat because they poured sugar in your gas tank. It's just kind of a nonsense 
story, and this guy's like, yeah, no problem. I've got a grenade or a homemade bomb or something, and he's like, yeah, I'll blow up this guy's boat with you with an explosive, which is like, you know, decades-long felony to have an explosive, use it to blow something up, and he wanted like 300 bucks to do it, right? Yeah, so the, the whole story, though, is he wasn't really charging to blow up the boat. What it was is we knew they had the, what they referred to as Christmas presents. We knew they were bombs. I hadn't seen them yet, and I didn't know where they were. So I came up with a story. Like if I was in New York and I just said, hey, listen, I want to go blow up Jordan. Okay. The problem is they're going to go blow up Jordan. Like I might even know about it and they're just Mm going to go do it because they think they're doing me a favor. So I had to have an environment where I could control it. So part of my cover story was that I poached lobsters. It allowed me the few times that I could go and say, hey, I'm going out poaching. They couldn't track me because I was out on the water and that would allow me to go home or go see the shrimp, whatever it is I had to do. So part of the story was, hey, you know, these poachers, and it's true that you know, you get caught poaching lobsters, watch out for the lobster who's coming along with a sawed-off shotgun because he's going <laughs> to blast you. They take that stuff serious. Poaching lobsters is what you go up to somebody else's traps and you just empty them out and steal his, his catch? Yep, take their lobsters. And so what I was saying is I was out there poaching, I got into this battle with this other guy. And anyways, long story short is he poured sugar into, the, into my the tanks of my boat and destroyed my engines. And I wanted to blow up his boat. And so when I told that to Izzo, he's like, hey, I may be able to help you with that. And so I'm like, all right, well, hey, that'd be great. We talked about it a little bit, but we didn't iron it out. We didn't have any set plan to do this, but I knew that he wasn't going to be able to go and use it on somebody in New York or something that I couldn't control. Long story short, again, another part of my backstory is that I did collections for my boss. You know, he's running some numbers and some things and, and I would help do collections and I'd get a piece of that action. So you're like collecting money from gamblers or something like that? Right, exactly. And it's just the more of like the small time criminal stuff, the more legitimate it makes you be. And so part of that was we set this up where it was agents, but I had set it up that I was doing these collections and that Izzo was going to come with me. Oh, so it's fake collections to like boost your, it's like street theater stuff, right? That's exactly what it's, street theater. And it builds my credibility. And so he comes up to do this and it it still has danger to it because if he goes and does something crazy and that's an agent that I put in that So I told him, I said, hey, the last guy who did this with me, he got too handsy and I threw him out and he's never did it again. You do one thing that I tell you not to do then you're out. And so he's like, oh, I'll do whatever you want me to do. You know, don't worry. He was just, I was just going to pay him a couple hundred bucks, you know, for doing it. So anyways, he comes up. And so we meet at a 99 restaurant. When I say come up, it was up to the Boston area. So we're in the 99 restaurant. We have a beer. We're eating something. And so we're just about done. And so I'm like, I got to go take a leak. So I go in the bathroom. He follows me in. I'm like, this is a little weird. But then he's like kind of standing behind me at the urinal. I'm like, this is really fucking weird. So, uh-huh. you know, I finish doing what I'm doing. And I turn around. He's got one of those uh, long trench coats, you know, the oil slick ones. And so as I turn, he like, like a flasher whips open his jacket and he's got a bomb in the inner pocket of the jacket. And I'm like, holy shit, he's got this bomb inside this restaurant. Like that's like, can't happen. So I'm like, Hey bro, like, listen, let's get out of here, man. We don't want to get caught with that thing. And hey, listen, I just want him the hell away from all these people. Yeah. Got him. I say, Hey, go meet him by my truck. So I'll pay the bill. So he went out and Anytime you say, I'll pay the bill, they're going to run out the door anyways. <laughs> so I go pay the bill real quick and we get out, out there and I'm like, hey, we got work to do, man. We can't be driving around this thing. And so the, I had one of those big star from Dunkin' Donuts cups. So gave me the buy, I put it into the cup and I left it in my vehicle. I said, we'll take your vehicle. So we did. And I faked making some phone calls. We went out to these, you know, the, the street theater and uh, I said, hey, listen, the boats, you know, he's out at sea. And he's like, oh, we'll just wait. And I'm like, no, you don't understand, man. He could be out for days. We could be sitting on the dock for days waiting for him to come back. He's like, oh, fuck. And I'm like, listen, I talked to my boss. He'll give you 300 bucks for it. And then I'll just take care of it whenever it comes back in or he'll take care of it himself. And he's like, all right, cool. He gets 300 bucks, right? So 
Yeah, I give him the 300 bucks. He leaves me with the ball. Oh, so he sold it to you. Yeah. He basically, yeah, he sold it to me. So now at least we knew what this, it was a high explosive wrap with steel, but it was a legit device. But when we got back to New York and we had church, Roblox, who's, you know, one of the more intelligent of the crew, he caught wind of what had happened. So in church, he's like, hey, where's the bomb? And I'm like, use it, sunk the boat. And he's like, you know who leaves or takes stuff like that? Cops. That's what cops do. Now I'm thinking, shit, he thinks I'm a cop. But as it turned out, as the story, the conversation went like for another minute, he thought my boss was a cop. And so his whole thing was like, hey, how do you know that he used it and sunk the boat? How do you know this? How do you know that? I'm like, listen, you guys know I dive. I'll dive and get photos. I'll tell him to tell me exactly where it was. I'll get pictures. He's like, get the fucking pictures of the boat. And he goes, and if I end up in a jail cell, and he's pointing at me and Izzo, he's like, you two better pray to God you're not going to sell anyone near me because I'm going to kill the both of you. He was hot that you know the device had got left behind. So did you get the pictures? I mean, how did you manage that? I just kind of strung it along for a little bit. And eventually, so then these guys, it's like, if it doesn't happen right away, it's not going to happen. So mm-hmm. I think it's time, and we never talked about it. So it wasn't like in 10 days, they felt good about it. And nobody got arrested. But as time went by, I just stopped bringing it up. He brought up a couple of times. I'm like, yeah, yeah I'm working on it. I'm going to make it happen, man, next time I go up. But then he just kind of dropped it. And I think it was more because nobody went to jail for it. And so he's like, okay. Yeah. If they were going to arrest us, they'd have done it by now, right? That kind of thing. 100%. Yeah, 100%. This is the Jordan Harbinger Show with our guest, Ken Croak. We'll be right back. This episode is sponsored in part by Maui Nui Venison. Maui Nui Venison is a mission-based food company bringing the healthiest red meat on the planet directly to your door. I love, well, this meat uh, and the mission. First off, it's seriously delicious. It's not gamey at all. I thought it would be kind of gamey. I've had venison before. It's easy to cook. The whole family enjoys it. I feel good about Maui Nui Venison from an ethical standpoint because not only does this company provide the most nutrient-dense and protein-dense red meat available, this is the only stress-free, 100% wild-harvested red meat on the market, an operation that is the only one of its kind in the world, as far as I know, actively managing Maui's invasive Axis deer populations. You don't think of deer as a pest, but they literally are helping to restore balance to vulnerable ecosystems and communities in Hawaii. I highly recommend trying their all-natural venison jerky sticks. If you're a jerk like me, for an optimal protein snack, as well as a wide variety of fresh cuts, all available in their online butcher shop. Get 20% off your first order at MauiNuiVenison.com slash Jordan. That's MauiNuiVenison.com slash Jordan. I know you can't spell that. It'll be linked in the show notes. Thank you so much for supporting the show and for listening to the show. It means the world to me. Of course, I do got to shill a mattress from time to time. That's how this works, folks. All the advertisers you hear on the show, all those codes, all those special URLs, they're all in one place, jordanharbinger.com slash deals. That page works on your phone. It's got a search thing now that's brand new. You can search for the sponsors using the search box on the website at jordanharbinger.com as well. So please do consider supporting those who support us. Now for the rest of my conversation with Ken Croak. Man, you always mentioned during your interactions with these guys that they might know you're a cop or they might have a suspicion and you're worried about them obviously shooting or killing you. That's one example. There was another one where you're moving a dead body in the woods and you're like, oh man, is, are they making me dig this grave for myself? Do you think that these guys were actually suspicious or was this just your mind playing tricks on you because of the pressure? Well, I think it's a combination, right? You know, and it's not even mind's pain. You always have to have your guard up. You always mm-hmm. have to be thinking, what if? Now, the moving the body, without getting too far into that story, because I don't want it to be a spoiler, but we learned 
from post-arrest interviews that they had gotten suspicious. And it was never really clear what it was that tripped them that they felt was suspicious. But I just bought some drugs off of Tracy. It was at the undercover house. And I got back inside the house actually to put the drugs away. And when I came out, there's a group of the pagans were in the driveway. And you know how you walk out and you know everyone's talking about you? Because mm-hmm. they all stopped talking. And so that happened. And I was like, well, what the hell's going on? And we later learned that they had thought that something you know had happened, that, that I was a copper informant. And I'm not sure which is worse. And you know, on day one, if they figure you're a copper informant, big deal. They're just going to say, hey, cop, leave. Day you know 100, when you've got charges on three quarters of them, mm-hmm. that's not going to end as easily. And so, you know, as it went on, they felt, you know, more secure that I wasn't. And, you know, hence I got more and more involved in some of the heavy hitting things that were going on in the, in the gang, which then raises the stakes, which makes it more difficult to stay in. What made you finally pull the trigger on this one and have everyone arrested? What was sort of like the, all right, here's the flag, like, let's do this. I mean, you have, so the investigation goes on and you have all these different times. Some of them are like things that they did that you put you in a bad spot. Like, you know, I was talking about having to kill that yeah. guy and throw him off. Other stuff was just the dumb luck. Like you dodged a bullet. You know, I mentioned to you when I got kicked out of the club, I was supposed to be doing guard duty out in front of the clubhouse. I got kicked out of the club. So I obviously wasn't going to be doing guard duty. So the Sergeant Arms was out there and the Hells Angels rolled up in the clubhouse. They surrounded the clubhouse and they beat the Sergeant Arms with ball peen hammers, fists, feet. He got med flighted out. And that should have been me. If I hadn't gotten kicked out, like dumb luck, I got kicked out. Mm-hmm. There was another incident right not too long after that when I was a sergeant at arms. We had been on this big run. There was like 30 of us. The way it works is the highest ranking rides front left, the next highest, and it works its way all the way back to the back of the pack. And so we had gotten back and the chapter president had said, hey, Hogman and Slam, I need you guys to go pick this up, something at Home Depot. So like, all right. So I pull out. I'm the sergeant at arms. He's the vice president. Vice president, as I mentioned before, doesn't have any status if the president's alive and out of prison, and he was. So I pull out front left. I'm the highest rank guy. I should be riding front left. He pulls out like around me into the other lane of traffic to get over to my left. And so I'm like, whatever, man. I'm a make-believe biker. I don't give a rat's ass if I'm riding front left, front right, whatever, man. You want to ride front left? Go ahead. We don't get a quarter mile down the road, and a minivan splatters him on the road. And it wasn't his fault. It was the minivan's fault. Mm. Splatters him. He codes out. They bring him back to life. He ends up coding out like two or three times on the, on the way to the hospital and at the hospital. That should have been me. If he hadn't done what he had done, it absolutely would have been the minivan hit me. So it's like, it's almost like Russian roulette, you know, at some point. But the real driver is the further you get into this and the more trusted you are, they assigned me to this hit squad inside the gang. Mm-hmm. Most of the gang members don't even know that this group exists within. And it's selected by mother club members of what they consider to be their heavy hitters, you know, the ones that can do the real down and dirty work. And so Hellboy, who's, you know, his pitches in the book, and he had approached me. He's like, hey, they want you to be a part of this. We were going to be targeting Hell's Angels and uh, we were going to be killing them. So you had that and you have that lack of control. And then I had gotten arrested during the case, legitimately got arrested with a gun by the local gang task force. And so I spent some time in jail. But that case was going through the courts and that in and of itself. So it's like the fuse is burning. Like at some point this had to come down. But at the same time, we had other elements of the crimes that we had to prove. So it was like, you know, chicken and the egg. We're like scrambling as fast as we can. They had to get all the evidence together. And like I was originally supposed to come out at Christmas. Then it went to June. And the June one was a real date. Like I actually thought I was going to be out at that point. And then it got continued until October. And 
that's somewhat demoralizing too, because you know, yeah. not only for me, but my family. My family's expecting to know he's going to be home, and now all of a sudden it's like, oh, I'll see him in four months. Yeah, cancel all the summer plans. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. So after all these guys get busted, aren't you worried that then they're going to try and kill you? Because I, I would imagine it's unsettling knowing that like 1,300 scumbag bikers want to kill you in the most painful way they can imagine, and also their patron support clubs too probably have your photo somewhere. Yeah, no, there's plenty of photos that were out there, but they- yeah, they did put two contracts out on me after the case came down. One of them, they investigated. I, I won't go into a lot of details on it, but the recording of that hit did not come out, but it was an active conversation. They knew. There was a lot of protection put into place. There was agents at my house for months afterwards, but there are uh, a lot of other safeguards. And also, they monitor. There's, listen, there's informants, part of these gangs. There's a lot of information that comes out to law enforcement. It's constantly, and to this day, still monitor all that, that activity. And anytime something comes out or there's a reference or anything to it, I get notified and the agency looks into it and, you know, investigates it. So it's part of what you do. And there's also, I will say for some of them, yeah, you know, obviously they were mad enough to put a hit out on me. For others, they're like, hey, that's the job. Like better to be a cop than an informant, I think, Mm. because at least with a cop, it's like your job. And they're like, hey, he's doing his job like we're doing our job. So it's a little bit of both. But yeah, you always, you're very wary of your surroundings and, and you try to do what you can to minimize it. Are you worried about it at all now? I mean, it's been like 10 years, but some of those guys are still probably in the gang doing stuff and probably higher ranking now, right? Yeah. And and there's still some that are in jail that will get out. I don't know that you ever totally relax about it, but I don't live my life looking over my shoulder either. I've gotten on with my life. And like I said, a bunch of time has passed. Some of them are dead. Some are still, you know, active, but you just, you know, you live your life. You know, you try to be smart about it and know that your agency's got your back and that's all you can really do. Once you're a part of a big operation like this, I assume you can't do undercover work again, right? Because you've met like thousands of scumbags over the years. Like someone could easily recognize you at this point after all that time in the game, right? Well, I did undercover work after this. So yeah, that's not 100%. It depends on the case. So like none of these guys went to trial. They all ended up pleading guilty. So there wasn't any Mm -hmm. big dramatic trial that had a lot of media coverage. And so you could have the simplest of case that generates a whole lot of you know, whether it be media attention or if there was a shooting and that kind of coverage, you know, or you can kind of fly low. I mean, I did it undercover for 20 years and was able to do that successfully. Now, writing this book, and if yeah, I was well, still on a job, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. It was over anyways, but if it wasn't, it would be now. But you're retired now, right? I am. You must still have that axe handle and those pagan, the cut, the leather, the jacket and the patches and stuff and the ring and all that stuff, right? You still got that stuff? Yeah, it's all locked away in a bank vault. All right. But yeah, I, I keep it more for training purposes because you know a lot of that stuff means there's messaging behind a lot of the patches and a lot of those other things. So when I speak to law enforcement groups, I'll sometimes bring that out. I always get people like, hey, do you mind if I take a picture of you in your colors? I'm like, never happened. Uh, so the day I came out, I swore I'd never put them on again and I never have. Yeah, I don't blame you. I don't blame you at all. It's not like you're dressing up as somebody you admire. No, no. I, I hated wearing them when I had to wear them. So why would yeah. I wear them if I don't? And then there's other people who be like, hey, could I take a picture with the colors on? I'm like, if that ever gets out, good luck, because it's not going to end well for you because you know they take this stuff really serious. But there, there is a training value behind those. Yeah, not, not only them taking a picture with something they're not supposed to be wearing, but your cut yeah. is definitely <laughs> yeah, like, oh, yeah. so not only are you wearing something you're not supposed to be wearing, it's the one from the undercover cop that put away like yeah, however yeah. many dozen <laughs> of our brethren. Yeah, it's like the worst version you could find. Yeah. What do you miss about the biker world now that you're completely out of the game? There's got to be something. No, no, no. Well, say, you know, people ask me all the time, like, hey, do you still ride? People ask, did you ride before? Yeah, I absolutely did. And 
when I came out of this case, I sold my bike and I didn't ride for a long period of time because it took away the fun of riding. Riding at 110 miles an hour, two feet off the person in front of you, one gear down, it's not fun. It's not relaxing by any stretch of the imagination. And it just, I got burnt out on it. I've gotten back into riding again. So that, that's been a good thing. I really don't, maybe a little bit of the, the chess match of, you know, how you're strategically putting together your case and trying to stay one step ahead. But no, I've moved on. I'm glad I did it. I wouldn't do it again. And I hope others do. And that's why I teach and talk to law enforcement crews, because I think it's one of the few ways that you can get to the hierarchy, the shot callers, because without being a part of the group, you're not going to get there. You don't even miss the barbecues? I will say they did have some good food, man. There's a couple of them, particularly Roadblock, who could cook. I mean, now he cooked with every of the worst ingredients, so that's probably why it tasted so good, but <laughs> the dude could cook. It's still to this day the best brisket I've ever had. So yeah, I can, I'm just imagining like, hey, you think this meth is good? You yeah. should gotta <laughs> yeah. try the brisket. Try his brisket. <laughs> yeah, that and that was the one thing I could eat as much as I wanted. So that was always a good thing. I'll tell you one an embarrassing thing: don't ever go to a Chinese food buffet with these guys because they're like animals. I mean, it's just it's embarrassing. <laughs> There's food flying everywhere. It's just it's ugly. Using their hands to get yeah. the chicken up. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Oh my god. Man, I've kept you for too long. Thank you so much. This is fascinating stuff, really. And thank you for what you did as well. I'm sure that we are safer not having some of these horrendous human beings out in society, even if they're detached from society. No, I appreciate it. I appreciate you having me on, you know, being able to tell my story. I've got some thoughts on this episode, but before I get into that, I wanted to give you a preview of one of my favorite stories from an earlier episode of the show with Jonna Mendez. She was the chief of disguise for the CIA in Moscow during the latter part of the Cold War. We really get into the weeds on how they hid people and hid spy gear in one of the most hostile espionage environments anywhere in the world. We invented technology that didn't even exist yet. The small batteries, for instance, they're in our watches and our phones and all of that stuff today. They're kind of like Q from James Bond, but it's the CIA. We could create any kind of character over your face. Masks that came out of Hollywood. We'd say, great, go down to the cafeteria and have lunch. This is at CIA headquarters where mm -hmm. everybody knows everybody in the cafeteria. And they would go and discover that no one paid any attention to them. You go, wow, I'm hiding in plain sight. They were following us just every minute. The case officer would step out of the car. The driver would hit a button. This dummy would pop up wearing the same clothes as the guy that had just left. Trailing surveillance would come around the corner and they'd follow that car all night. They never knew. And if they could get to those people, they would execute them. They were feeding people into these crematoriums, feet first, alive. Unbelievable. A really valuable agent said, I'll work for you on one condition, and that is that you give me the ability to take my own life. Eventually, everybody got arrested. So they arrested him. And we had put that L pill we gave him in the cap of the Mont Blanc pen. It was cyanide, and he knew where it was. And they said, we want you to write your confession. So they brought him his Mont Blanc pen. For more with Jonna Mendez, including some incredible spy stories that will really perk your ears, check out episode 344 of The Jordan Harbinger Show. Man, this episode was so good. A lot of rules for being undercover and staying alive are in the book, but one that I remember is keep your first name, and then you make up an easy last name to remember. Also, you have to be able to explain quirks. Like in Ken's case, he grew up around Boston, and when he gets drunk, a Boston accent comes out, so he had to be ready to explain why he says certain things a certain way. He, you have to keep a lot of your life exactly the same as it actually is, 
so that if you get wasted or something happens where something comes out in an emergency, you don't get made right away. You can explain it away. Ken was also telling me that there was actually a full background check and application to become a pagan, which is kind of funny, but it makes sense, right? It's just ironic that this outlaw biker gang that slings meth and murders people is like, well, we want to make sure that you have a record. Actually, it's not a clean record. It's a, it's a dirty record, right? We want to make sure you have been arrested, especially for violent crime. And ideally, you've been to prison before, maybe multiple times, but you better have a good credit score. I'm just imagining how that process goes in practice. While in the gang, he found that he could order explosives really easily from guys in the gang who would then make bombs, which is really, really scary. And it's a miracle we don't have more crazy explosions and wild violence in this country. And I think it's because of guys like Ken Croak. I always wondered, of course, how big these gangs actually are. Turns out they're pretty huge. 1,300 people are in the Pagans or were in the Pagans, including prospects. That is an enormous amount of guys. And also, I don't think that includes all their little satellite clubs and feeder clubs and things like that that help them with some of their stuff. 1,300 guys in one gang, and I think there are six of these major, major motorcycle club gangs. So there's no shortage of extremely violent nomadic criminals rolling around our highways. I also just cannot imagine, I mentioned this on the show, balancing this type of undercover operation with having a family life as well. Having two kids of my own, I'm like, how do you do a meth drop and a firearm pickup to get a couple grenades or whatever to blow up somebody's boat, and then you're on a three-day bender, and then you got to go to a PTA meeting and an under-15 soccer game the next day and look somewhat normal and presentable? I mean, how on earth do you do that? Something's got to give. Ken also told me that the longer an undercover operation goes on, the more dangerous it becomes. I know we touched on this during the show. There's more chances to blow your cover, but also, like he said during the interview, if they find out you're a cop on day one, they just, they get rid of you. But if they find out you're a cop after a year, they're going to kill you, and it's probably not going to be fast. Also, the bureaucracy inside law enforcement agencies gets to become more and more. As cases go on and people try to micromanage things and new people come in, experienced people go out, and stuff like that, those changes, they can get you hurt or killed. So, man, really thankful that people like Ken Croak are out there working on our side, or we would really be at the mercy of these kinds of criminals, which is a really scary thought. Links to all things Ken Croak will be on the website and in the show notes at jordanharbinger.com. Please use our website links if you buy books from Ken or from any guest on the show. It does help support this show. Transcripts are also in the show notes. Videos are on YouTube. Advertisers, deals, discount codes, those are all at jordanharbinger.com slash deals. Please, once again, consider supporting those who make this show possible. I'm at Jordan Harbinger on both Twitter and Instagram. You can also connect with me on LinkedIn. I always enjoy a good conversation with a fan. Don't forget, I'm going to be interviewing author Ryan Holiday live in person in Los Angeles at the Venice West on June 13th. I'd love to see you there in person. Tickets are available at jordanharbinger.com slash tickets. That's jordanharbinger.com slash tickets. Again, June 13th, Los Angeles at the Venice West. That's me and Ryan Holiday live on stage. Hope to see you there. Speaking of connecting, I'm teaching you how to do the same, connecting with great people and managing your relationships. I use software systems and tiny habits that I do every day. I put that all into a course. jordanharbinger.com slash course is where you can find it. It's a free course. I don't want your billing info. None of that. I'm just trying to teach you how to dig the well before you get thirsty. And hey, most of the guests you hear on the show, speaking of interesting people, they subscribe and contribute to the course. Come join us. You'll be in smart company where you belong. This show is created in association with Podcast One.
My team is Jen Harbinger, Jace Sanderson, Robert Fogarty, Millie Ocampo, Ian Baird, Josh Ballard, and Gabriel Mizrahi. Remember, we rise by lifting others. The fee for this show is you share it with friends when you find something useful or interesting. I thought this episode was fascinating. If you know somebody else who'd feel the same way, please share this episode with them. The greatest compliment you can give us is to share the show with those you care about. In the meantime, do your best to apply what you hear on this show so you can live what you listen. And we'll see you next time. This episode is sponsored in part by Georgia Tech Scheller College of Business. Are you a go-getter woman aiming to level up in your career or considering a switch to a new industry and searching for the program to make those big career dreams a reality? Well, listen closely. The Georgia Tech Scheller College of Business full-time MBA program consistently ranks top 20 in the nation. Scheller's full-time MBA program is ranked number one among top business schools when comparing total tuition cost with average starting salary. Tuition is over 50% lower than other comparable ranked programs. The full-time MBA class of 2023 achieved a record-breaking average salary of $154,679, which is one, fantastic, and two, a 12.5% increase from the previous year. In addition to the affordable tuition, Scheller offers many full scholarships and fellowships for women. If you want to discover more about the program, attend one of their full-time MBA webinar information sessions. And when you attend an information session, you receive an application fee waiver. Go to gtmbawomen.com to learn more and see where a Scheller MBA will take you.